and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, all right, everybody, go ahead and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We get to start a new book tonight, 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, as you turn there, I think I've uh, given you a quote there on your notes. In his book, Onward, the Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Commission President Russell Moore has the following words. The older generation in the church in every era must decide if they will respond to their successors as Saul did to David or as Paul did with Timothy. In David, Saul, King Saul, saw his own mortality and he seethed with jealousy and envy uh, over David's success. And you know, remember the story, he ended up throwing a spear at him twice, right? And instead, it should have seen God's goodness um, in keeping His promises to Abraham and how the faith was going forward to the next generations. And what a contrast that is with Paul, uh, who spent his final moment shepherding and mentoring his successors, Timothy and Titus and others. Uh, Paul realized that Barnabas had poured things into him, and he just lived to pour into others. And uh, every generation has a choice. And I, I appreciate how uh, Mr. Moore said this. Every uh, Dr. Moore, every generation has a choice to go out like Saul or to go out like Paul. Now, these just aren't just theoretical words. Um, I struggle with this uh, as a pastor. This past week, Monday and Tuesday, I had a chance to be with um, some, uh, you know, pastors of, it was a week ago, pastors of the largest uh, churches in uh, Virginia from an SBCV perspective. And some of them are older, some of them are my age, a good number that are younger. And uh, on the one hand, I'm excited for all God's doing in them and their churches. It sure was good to get together and share the stories and things. Uh, but I remember, especially as a pastor who has encouraged church planners and younger pastors all along the way, how every once in a while um, I can get a little jealous of those brothers, you know, and how they're doing and the way things are going. Uh, I remember... Um, it was a lot easier when I was in my 20s, and the ones that I was mentoring and discipling were in their teens. I, was, I did student ministry for 10 years, you know, and I never felt threatened by those pipsqueaks, you know, uh, and uh, that sort of thing. I loved them, and a lot of good things happened to that. I had a fair amount of excitement about it even when I was nearing 40, and the ones I was mentoring were mostly in their teens, 20s, and 30s. As a young pastor, you know, and God was bringing us young couples and others, uh, single guys and girls and things. It was just great to be able to pour into them. Now that I'm over 50, uh, I have had to wrestle with jealousy over how well it seems to go sometimes for some of these Christian brothers, you know. And uh, it gets a little harder to share uh, knowledge and resources, you know, because you think, man, if they implement it, they might uh, be a better church than ours, you know, or, or things like that. Um, it's this struggle to hold on to versus to, to let go and even uh, shepherd and bless, you know, the next generations in the ministry and in life. Uh, sometimes when I see how well it's going for younger protégés and church plants and revitalization works, um, and as I face the inevitable challenges of pastoring uh, two churches that, you know, had been around a while, 
And I think I've shared with you guys that uh, every church, uh, Wayne Hills was, uh, it, it was planted in 1956, uh, Tabernacle in 1931, any church that's been around a while, every 20 years or so has to, in essence, remember all the reasons why they were passionate about the gospel and reaching people for Christ. And that has to happen every 20 years or so in a new passionate way, or else it's just steady decline to oblivion, you know, as the church turns inward and forgets what really got them to be the church they were was outreach, right? But it's so easy to turn inward into garden things. Now, I've never physically thrown a spear at my younger pastor friends, but sometimes, you know, I've thrown a verbal spear. Oh, they've got people because they're watering it down, you know, or uh, doing this compromise or that compromise. And then I've had to repent because that's not who I am. That's not my heart. And you guys know that, too. So as I turn to the pages of Scripture, I find it greatly encouraging that in the New Testament, we have the records of the last things said uh, by Paul before he dies and Peter before he dies. Um, and we find them in their last words, their last letters, you know, their last emails, right, to younger protégés. Uh, they are pouring themselves into others in, in uh, the knowledge that God will convey the faith to the next generation through the ones that they've poured into. Um, so today we begin about 10 messages in 2 Peter. And Peter wrote 1 Peter from uh, Roman imprisonment. We learned that in 1 Peter 5.13. You know, she who is in Babylon greets you, right? He's talking about the church in Rome. And he specifically is having members of the church of Rome come and visit him while he's there in the lockup. Lock and chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Peter tells us the recipients are the same as 1 Peter, the churches of the Black Sea reason. So he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. So he's writing to the same ones. And in 1 Peter we learned that these are the churches that are around the Black Sea. So if in your mind eye you can picture where Israel is and you know that the Mediterranean Sea is off of that, the land above that is modern-day Turkey and Syria, Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, you know, and up the, the big body of water up above all that is the Black Sea uh, to the north of the Galatia region from scriptural days. And Peter had spent time ministering there, leading people to Christ, and he's talking to them. So these are Peter's last words before his martyrdom by Nero about A.D. 68. So 2 Peter was probably written in A.D. 67 and 68. So we really have, just as 2 Timothy is Paul writing before his, he gets killed, 2 Peter is Peter writing from probably the same prison in Rome about the same time that uh, he was going to be martyred. Tradition has it that Peter had to watch his wife get martyred first. I don't know if that's true or not, but before she went to the cross, uh, she looked back at him and said, remember the Lord. And uh, so tradition has it they were both actually martyred, not just Mr. Peter, but Mrs. Peter were as well. And then you've heard that Peter was crucified on an upside down cross because his executioners, he looked at them and said, I know you do this, you put people on crosses and stuff, but I'm not worthy to die the same way Jesus did. Could you crucify me upside down? And they did, right? So uh, that's what tradition tells us, and it's recorded in Fox's, Fox's Book of Martyrs. A second, uh, again, Second Peter has a lot of um, uh, similarities with Second Timothy as these great apostles shared some of the same concerns. Uh, both books not only were written by guys about to die for the faith, they were written to deal with heresy in the church. So um, Second Timothy about apostasy and heresy from church laity, Second Peter from church leaders. 
So if Second Timothy is concerned about, you know, possible, uh, uh, you know, bad teaching and things and, uh, from, from the lay folks, Second Peter, he really bears down on church leaders. And of course, Paul had already, uh, in writing to Timothy, was encouraging him as a young pastor, so you have that as well. But here's your first fill in the blank. Even as he personally is facing persecution from without, Peter is more concerned for faithfulness, faithfulness to God's Word within the church. And that's a good word for us. We're about to read 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4. But, you know, um, at the end of the day, we can't do much about what happens in Washington, you know, and even Richmond. I mean, we can organize and get involved and, you know, even here in Danville City, right, and things like that. We can organize, vote, you know, and pray and all those different things. But uh, when it comes to the church and our fellowship together, we can do a lot more about that. And 2 Peter uh, shows Peter's heart to deal with what we can control within, you know, to make sure we are the real deal and uh, doing what we need to do to pass the faith along to others. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained like precious faith with us by or through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And I love verse 3, as His divine power has given to us all things, everything that pertains to life and godliness, everything you need to live life, everything you need to be godly, we've got in Christ and the resources that we have in Him, His indwelling Holy Spirit, etc., and the Word of God. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Did you note that a couple different times he uses the word precious? We think about this uh, Peter and this rugged hand fisherman that he was and that sort of thing. And I've been around some rugged guys. I tell you, they don't usually look over at you saying, you're just precious to me, you know. <laughs> but here's this great fisherman, such a rugged man's man, you know. And Peter just can't talk of, help but talk about how precious his faith is and how precious his brothers and sisters in Christ are. Pretty neat. Okay, so tonight we're going to talk about partners, power, and uh, promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Word of God. Thank you for this great letter, how we have Peter's words before he was killed for the faith. And we thank you, God, for how he starts this like he did first, Peter, going over the, the, the resources we have in Christ, our wonderful relationship with the God the Father through Christ the Son in the power of the Spirit, and how we have the Word of God and how we have um, all the realities, things that are true of us because we've come believers. Lord, we're truly thankful for how you've resourced and equipped us to serve you in our generation the way that Peter was confident would be true in his generation. He had, he, he had probably knowledge that he would soon be killed, and yet he had no, uh, nothing but confidence that the church would go on into the next generation because of what the Spirit does through the preaching of the Word and as churches together serve Christ. And so as he writes to them one more time, we see God writing a love letter to us as well. And we thank you for the uh, power that we have and the promises that we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.
Okay, so verse 1, he says, this is from Simon Peter. It may say Simeon and yours. Uh, same guy, Simon is Greek. That's the Greek language there. Simeon is Hebrew, like the Jewish tribe. Remember one of the 12 tribes was Simeon? And so Simon is Simeon, depending on whether you go Greek and make it Simon or Simeon Hebrew. Kind of like me, I can go by Daniel. I can go by Danny. I can go by Dan. Uh, and... Uh, Depending on hats, there's other titles, right? Pastor, I've been a coach, you know, a dad and a, a husband, you know, I am a husband and dad. Um, so Peter, that's also um, Greek, the new name that Jesus gave him. What does Peter mean? Petra? Rock, right? So his name was Simon, like the old ancient Hebrew name Simeon. But Jesus looked at him and saw not what he had been, but what he was going to turn him into. So he looked and I said, he said, you're rocky. You're rock, man. I'm going to build the church on people just like you. And um, uh, Cephas is Aramaic, so you remember sometimes they put in Cephas. Um, God had personally worked in Peter's life, and God is personally working in each of our lives. And so I love the fact that uh, Jesus did that for Simon, uh, but I get goosebumps when I think that Revelation says that's going to happen for us. Revelation 2.17 says, I will also give him or her, the overcomer, a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, in those days I'm told that uh, they uh, oftentimes when they pronounce judgment would put forward either a black stone if you were still guilty, if you're found guilty, or a white stone if you were found innocent, right? White representing the purity there. Um, and um, so he says, I'm going to give a white stone and on that stone uh, a pet name that the Lord has for us. So, have you ever been around one of those persons that just loves to nickname people? Partly it's because they can't remember names, right? But they just take a characteristic, right? Spunky or, you know, uh, sparky or something like that, you know, and they always call you that. Well, the Lord knows everything about us, the hairs of our head. He knows our name. And yet, won't that be neat, uh, Harry and Jim, you know, to think about uh, the one day the Lord just spent a little time with you personally and he's got a name and he's like, okay, now let me tell you what I call you, you know? <laughs> and uh, pretty neat to think about. Pretty neat to think about. So that had happened for Peter. It's going to happen for us. And then in verse 1, Peter calls himself a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, so, uh, boy, he knew who the Lord was, right? I'm just a servant. I'm a bondservant, a slave. The word is doulos there, a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of my master in heaven. Uh, and I think of myself as that, Peter says, before the fact, oh yeah, I'm an apostle too. And uh, so this is the Word of God you're about to get because the Lord's working through a select number of us to give you the New Testament. Um, bondservant has a double meaning, certainly a term of humility, but also a reminder that he had been bought or redeemed by Jesus who now owned Peter. Go back to 1 Peter 1. Good thing it's right there, huh? Um, 1 Peter 1, verse 18, Peter writes, "...knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold." I don't think of silver and gold as corruptible, but they are compared to eternal realities, right? I think of them as pretty, you know, precious metals, enduring metals and things. But to Peter, it's like, yeah, silver, gold, nothing. The streets in heaven are paved to gold, you know. So that's nothing compared to what really can't be taken away from your relationship with Jesus. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood, there's that word again, precious, the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
So uh, this world puts a lot of emphasis on silver and gold, but what can't be taken away from you ever, ever, ever is a relationship with God purchased for you by the blood of Christ when you turn to Him. So I love thinking about that. Uh, remember that the other writers all list Peter first among the apostles. So in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, Acts 1, wherever you find the 12 mentioned, Peter's name comes first. There's more written about him in the Gospels than anyone but Jesus. Um, but Peter wanted them to know that he was not superior to any other servant of Jesus Christ. We saw this humility in the last uh, book when in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, he says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm just a fellow older with you guys that are serving the Lord, you mature saints, you know, that lead the church. Um, and uh, the apostles did have a true authority. False teachers did not, though. And that's why he does put in the title that he's an apostle. The Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God through these men with first-generation ties to Jesus. And so we don't get to be apostles like Peter. Every once in a while, a denomination will have as their leaders, and they'll use the word apostle. And I think that's very unfortunate because we want to reserve the apostles for those men that were eyewitnesses of Christ, those they touched, that first generation of Christians that as eyewitnesses were trusted with writing uh, the Word of God and uh, that the God worked through to plant the first churches. So the Word of God is the authority today, not living men. Um, I also love, though, how, you know, now, now this may sound uh, duplicitous for me, you know, I came here. And, uh, you know, there's Dr. Danny Campbell, right? You know, and uh, Elizabeth said, I want you to use that Dr. Campbell uh, title as often as possible. And I'm like, but I'm just Danny. I'm just Danny. I'm Pastor Danny. I'm Danny, you know. And she said, and, and we had a few scars from some disrespect, you know, uh, because I'd gone from youth pastor to pastor in old church, and I worked so hard there. And some folks just, they never, you know, is on them, not a lot of respect over the years and things like that. I was like Rodney Dangerfield, you know, no respect, you know. Um, so uh, she wanted to make sure that I started here, and people said, okay, there's the pastor, there's the position, Dr. Campbell, you know that. Uh, but uh, that's never been important to me. Um, and uh, when people ask what to call me, I say, call me Danny, you know, that's my name. And uh, I love how Peter did the same. Paul did the same. You know, these are men that had great stature and apostles and things like that. But call me Peter. I think about, you ever hear the story of Loretta Lynn meeting Richard Nixon? So Loretta Lynn, the great country singer. Uh, we actually got to see her uh, ranch when we were leaving out of Jackson. It's not too far from Jackson where Hope goes to school and stuff. We ate at her little uh, ca a cafe there uh, not too far out of Jackson. But uh, she was at the height of her career during the Nixon administration, and she was invited to the White House to meet the president. And you'll remember that this coal miner's daughter had risen out of intense poverty. She had a modern-day rags-to-riches story. And when President Nixon greeted her, she smiled her big country smile and said, How are you, Richard? So nice to meet you. And... Uh, both her handlers, the ones with her in the White House, were like, oh, no, we didn't go over something with her. That's Mr. President, not uh, Richard. And they, they, someone pulled her aside and said, you can't refer to the president of the United States by his first name. You cannot call him Richard. And Loretta responded, well, they called Jesus Jesus, didn't they? <laughs> and they called Paul Paul and Peter Peter. Peter who walked with Jesus and calling him Peter was fine. So instead of a spirit, even as he starts here, of lording over his authority over his disciples, he next says he's writing. So I am a bondservant. I'm an apostle, Peter says, but I'm writing to you 
look what he says there. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Obtained is a rare word that often referred to obtaining something by lot. Um, and uh, it was used of foreigners who now had equal citizenship. Foreigners were now equal in rank, position, honor, and standing. I don't know if you ever got to see an American citizenship ceremony ever. It's so neat, you know, because uh, all the work they've done to pass the test and to become official American citizens. So some of the proudest Americans that day are those who have just passed those ceremonies and things. Um, but uh, Peter uh, has this idea of citizenship in his head and said, you know, you have obtained this like precious faith because of what Jesus did. He bought me, he bought you. He's redeemed us all by his blood, all those of us who now have turned to Christ. And I love that because he puts himself on equal footing with all who have faith, a like faith, like precious faith in the Lord Jesus. He leaves no room for super Christians here, only a super savior, right? And uh, we have a super duper savior. Um, you ever thought about that? I mean, you're probably aware that within Buddhism, the average Buddhist can never be what the monks are. Man, the monks, they have really holified themselves. You know, they've gone away from society. They have shaved their head. They've donned the robe. They live, on, they sleep in painful situations and, you know, uh, they, they, are, they, they mistreat their bodies to bring it into subjection and all the different stuff. And so what they've done is they have presented uh, these guys as super Buddhist, right? You know, uh, and, and you can't be like them. And unfortunately, for a while, the Roman Catholic Church, well, they got off on a lot of things, you know, but, uh, you know, th it, there was a time, 300s, 400s, 500s, where one reaction to worldliness within the church was to pull away from the church and to not engage society, not, uh, you know, be uh, uh, working within society to change it and change, see people saved, but instead to pull away, to go out into the desert, the wilderness. Some of the guys got up on a pole or whatever and things like that. And so uh, that, for Christians back in the city, sometimes they said, wow, if I was going to be a super Christian, you know, I'd go sit on one of them poles out there in the desert. Um, but I can't be like them because I got a wife and kids and need to take care of them and those things, you know. So, uh, and even when the Catholic ch Church said that uh, the priests will be supermen that don't marry, you know, they'll be uh, celibate, you know. Uh, not in the scriptures, of course. Uh, Peter had a wife, you know. Um, Paul was a single man, but Peter had a wife. Certainly uh, not an impediment to serving the Lord as a pastor, having a wife and that sort of thing. But the Roman Catholic Church said so. Only priests, only you know, men could be a priest there and they had nuns too and those sorts of things. And so throughout the Middle Ages, there was a thought, a division, a sharp division between the sacred and the secular. And it was so great that I don't, we're not really thinking about Buddhist monks, but sometimes we are thinking about that Roman Catholic hangover that sometimes Christians have. And we say, there's the preacher class. And here's the laity class. You know, I'm just a layman. Boy, that Pastor Danny, you know, but I'm just a layman. And I can't be like that. And we simply don't find that in here, do we? What we find is the moment every one of us gets saved, we have the same things that Billy Graham had when he was saved. Forgiveness of sins, indwelling Holy Spirit, reserved place in heaven, the ability to humble ourselves and pray, the um, ability to courageously engage a situation and talk to somebody about Christ rather than shy away and be cowardly in that moment, uh, to speak truth in love uh, to uh, whatever situation we find ourselves in, 
And frankly, over the years, many Christian, what we would call laymen, have been a lot better in that than some of our pastors and church leaders, right? You know who one of the best was? Y'all know uh, uh, a biz the businessman named Bill Bright that founded Campus Crusade for Christ? Uh, you know, uh, what a guy. And he, of course, influenced so many. We think about some of our godly Gideons and things like that. But um, uh, what a great thing that at salvation, at conversion, uh, we're all at the level playing field of the cross. And all of us can go out and make a huge difference for Christ. And we'll be rewarded for that. And uh, just like Billy Graham was and the missionary Lottie Moon was and whoever else was, you know, and those things. Uh, sometimes Lottie Moon would be criticized over in China uh, by Virginia, even Baptist pastors. Hey, you're talking to so many people over there. There's men and women and that sort of thing. Looks like you're even doing a little bit of preaching. And she said, listen, I'm not trying to preach over here. But, and as soon as these guys are ready, they're going to be the preachers in the church and stuff. She said, look, there's 500 Baptist pastors in Virginia, and you are all welcome to come over here because I'm the only one for an area larger than Virginia, you know, the state I'm in. She said, I don't know how these things look from heaven, but they look mighty queer in China. <laughs> and so thank God that she had gone over there and saw great things happen. And that's true for all God's children. You know, when we become Christians, the ability to make that difference out there, uh, you know, um, and yes, God gives us some men to be raised up as pastors, you know, but every saint has their role in um, uh, doing the work of the Lord. This brings us to the first things Peter teaches us. So three things true believers possess. Verses 1 and 2, the first one is a provided righteousness, a provided righteousness. He says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Peter the fisherman had become a first-rate theologian. He's speaking here of imputed righteousness. Uh, so... Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the theological word there is it's an imputed righteousness. There are three imputations the Bible talks about. The first one is bad news. <laughs> and the next two are good news. The one that's bad news is the Bible makes clear that because of Adam and Eve's sin, Sin has been imputed to all the descendants of Adam and Eve so that everyone born is born a sinner by nature. They've got an imputed sinful problem, sinful condition that turns into sinful choices early on in life. And we find ourselves under the rightful judgment of God. Bad news. Good news. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and for those that believe. Remember it says in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith, not by what he did, but when he believed in God, God imputed to him the righteousness, I believe, the righteousness that was coming of Christ, you know. So uh, our sin gets imputed to the cross. So that's the second imputation. When we believe our sin is imputed to Christ, dealt with there. The third imputation is the second part of 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our sin gets imputed to the cross. Christ's righteousness gets imputed to us. And that's the standing we have before God when we believe. Sin dealt with, imputed righteousness, a righteousness we didn't get. So that's why a great acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Um, Romans 4, 5, To the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just like Abraham's was, Genesis 15, 6. 
Um, now, before we move on, don't miss that. What is um, what does Peter call Jesus in verse one? At the end of the verse, what does he call Jesus? Our God and Savior, right? The way that Greek lays up, he's saying that Jesus is God. So if you're looking to add up the verses to share with your Jehovah's Witnesses, friends, and others, you know, that deny that Jesus is God, they say He's a God. Uh, John 1 says that Jesus is the Creator of all, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jehovah's Witnesses in their New World Translation say the Word was a God there. Um, but nobody working with them knew any Greek. They just changed it because they didn't like what the Word said. And the Bible says there's a big old curse coming to people that do that. But that, that aside, verse 3, it says Jesus created all things, and there's no higher God than the Creator of all things. Here it says that he, he says He's our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is a great one to have there. And then he says, uh, grace and peace be multiplied to you. He said the same seven words back in 1 Peter 1, 2. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Not just head knowledge, the word here really is experimental knowledge. Some of us know our neighbor's names, but we don't know our neighbor, right? Some of us are familiar with people at church, but we don't really have a relationship with them. And, that, and that's okay uh, in one sense. Uh, I, I encourage everybody to have deep relationships with fellow church members, uh, but there's some real hard uh, research that says you can only really know about 20 people. It's about a Sunday school class size of people. And you can have a general level of familiarity with 148 people, you know. And so whenever a church has got more than that, like the tabernacle does, you really have to have good systems in place and trust that your deacons through the family ministry plan and the Sunday school through what they do and their, your staff through trying real hard, you know, has a familiarity with more and stuff. Um, but... Um, some people know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. So in addition to the, the close relationships we have with others and the general love we have for all the Christians we're around, uh, man, we, we need to have a, a growing, abiding relationship with the Lord. And, uh, you know, so one of the great concerns I've had over the years, and others have it too, is that sometimes uh, people have been encouraged to treat faith transactionally as a transaction, and it is. I placed my faith in Christ. He gave me eternal life. Woo, what a great transaction, right? Uh, but Jesus himself defined eternal life in John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life that they may know you, Father, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So the whole point of eternal life is beginning a relationship with Jesus that grows and will be so dear and precious to us as we are in heaven. And so, you know, I really encourage you if... Um, in other words, it's a transformation that's going on inside you, not just a transaction, right? So I really encourage you, if you have thought more of the checklist things of the faith, to take the time just uh, several times a day just to say, Jesus, I love you. I'm so thankful to you uh, for who you are. And that sense of him being your best friend, uh, your uh, dear fa Heavenly Father, uh, the author and finisher of your faith, all those different things, as your devotional time informs, that, that walk grows, you know, and you begin to start experiencing a little bit of the uh, love sickness for him, like when your spouse was away or something, you know, and uh, you th start thinking about the hymns like, I come to the garden alone, you know, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, 
And uh, some people are so extroverted and bubbly and like being around people uh, that uh, they know a lot of people, but they don't spend a lot of time with the Lord, you know. And so we got to make that, to, like Steve Green sang about here at the Tabernacle, to love the Lord our God is what? The heartbeat of our mission, the spring from which our service overflows. Peter wants, Peter wants their relationship with Jesus to grow. So we've got a provided righteousness. From verse 3, we see we've got power for living. Wow, it says His divine power has given to us all things. You might want to underline or circle all things. All things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. So not only has God given us everything we need to be born again and saved, He's given us everything we know He tells us here for life and for godliness. Um, and uh, that's worth rejoicing in, isn't it? Uh, that we um, have what we need uh, with our salvation, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, with the precious Word of God that we have, the Spirit helping us take the Word of God and apply it to our lives, with uh, relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes the way He meets that need is through our brothers and sisters in Christ, emotionally, physically, mentally. Um, so growth and effectiveness. We've got every spiritual resource we need. Um, interestingly, in these three chapters, some form of the word knowledge occurs at least a dozen times. So this is a repeated theme that uh, we have a knowledge of Christ experientially, but also knowledge in the Word. We know what we need to make it in the Christian life. Um, in this book, he talks about the right kind of knowledge because he's also going to talk about false teachers that are teaching the wrong kind of knowledge. Um, but before he describes counterfeits, he speaks of things true believers should possess. Um, and so if I gave you a $100 bill and you could tell it was photocopied, that would be your first suspicion, right? But then when you looked at that thing, if it had my picture on it instead of Ben Franklin, right? you'd say, well, that's a big, fat, false uh, bill right there. I can't do anything with that. So you'd know it was false. But the reason you would know it was false, because sometime when you were younger, you had that first $100 bill in your hand, right? And uh, you know George is a pretty cool president on the one, but man, when you got a Ben Franklin staring at you, that's worth 100 George Washington pictures staring at you, right? So you looked at that thing and you saw... His, exactly how his face looks on that thing. You saw the big hundreds on the side and the different thing. And then when they changed it a few years back, you said, oh, it's different now. And you'd studied that one, right? Because it was worth a hundred of the one things. So um, the way that you discover counterfeits, the way you identify counterfeits is by knowing the real thing. Isn't that a great concern for our day? So many of our people, younger but also older, have such little knowledge of what the Scripture teaches they don't know the real thing, and so they're dupes for the counterfeits, right? And uh, man, if you've spent time studying the real thing, error shows itself pretty quick to you, doesn't it? You know, uh, so somebody talks about salvation by faith plus works, you go, no, wait a second, no, it's salvation by God's grace through faith. A person that's saved then will work. That's what the scripture teaches. The rest of that's counterfeit, you know. And um, so, uh, the counterfeit crowd always says, you need Jesus plus something. And when they add in all the somethings, they don't really have Jesus anymore, right? So Mormons talk about Jesus, but all the extra stuff they throw on there, by the time they're done, it's a works-based salvation. And they use the same terms with completely different meanings. 
and their Jesus ain't the biblical Jesus, right? It's a creation of a confused, weird 17-year-old uh, that had read too many science fiction books in New York and came up with a religion of his own, you know, and then uh, got killed for stealing other people's wives uh, as, he, as time passed. So anyway, the, the true thing helps us with the counterfeits. Okay, so power for living was the second thing. Peter offers a simple knowledge to false uh, teaching, a simple solution to false teaching, knowledge of Jesus, knowledge of true doctrine. And that brings us to our last thing that he covers in these first four verses. So at uh, salvation, we've been given a provided righteousness, power for living. But then verse 4, promises for victory. Let's bring this down the home stretch. Verse 4, he says, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Again, he uses the word precious again. Now, help me out here. What are some of the promises believers have been given? I've referred to some of them already in the uh, message here, but let's, let's see if we can get a few promises uh, from the floor here. What are some promises that God has given us as His children? Eternal life. That's a good one, right? You know what eternal means? Forever. Billy Graham would say forever and ever and ever. Eternal life. That's a good one. What else is, what are some of the promises? Yes. He'll never leave us. What a great promise. A forever never with no exceptions ever. My friend David Johnson from Rileyville used to say he was a Scotsman. Amen. Good. What else? Eternal life, eternal security, we'd say from that verse, uh, wouldn't we there? Uh, Maybell, yeah, uh, he'll never leave us. Eternal security to go with eternal life. Well, what else? Ephesians 1 really goes over it. Sometime, if you're just looking to get at least 10 of who you are in Christ put together, go to Ephesians 1. There it says that we've been adopted as God's children. So a promise is we're part of God's family now. Uh, we were predestined for these things. So God's been thinking about what He wanted to do in our hearts and lives for a long, long time. We're in on that now. We finally have, uh, you know, we finally have lined up in reality what our eternal destiny was, which is pretty cool. Um, we have the Holy Spirit residing inside. That's our guarantee of our future inheritance, uh, which is great. A promise would be heaven uh, and then later new bodies on a new earth when we combine the promises of all the scriptures on those things. That's awesome. Uh, forgiveness of sins. Um, uh, so many different things. Well, um, he says that through these promises and really owning them, we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. And we know we're in a day. Uh, P Peter, uh, that Roman Empire, Nero was a wicked, wicked man. And he, um, you know, uh, just uh, made mockery of traditional marriage uh, and other things during his time. He uh, burned Rome and blamed the Christians, you know. Uh, he was a despicable person, and Rome was a decadent society. Uh, many, it was accepted in, within marriages that they would have adulterous affairs. Uh, men would often keep uh, lovers, they'd also, husbands would keep lovers, they'd also, sometimes that involved uh, children. Uh, yuck, you know, Nero had one of those going on, a, a pedophilia relationship and stuff. Just awful, terrible sins. Paul Harvey used to say, in times like these, it helps to remember there have always been times like these. 
it makes us all ache here in America because we know that we've had tremendous times of revival, tremendous times of righteousness, tremendous times where America led the way uh, in righteousness and justice and sending missionaries to the end of the earth. And it really hurts, doesn't it, to see that in decline. And we pray for a revival in the church's awakening land so those things can be true again. But we need to remember that Peter uh, and these early apostles wrote to p Christians facing very similar situations of decadence like we have in our day. An anti-God mindset, uh, a fragmentation of some of the very basic truths about gender and marriage and uh, other things. And so he, they really could relate to us, you know. And uh, so he says here, for partakers of the divine nature, it's going to help us escape the corruption that's in the world through all the lusts and this anti-God mindset, you know. That was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. So because we have a provided righteousness, power for living, and precious promises, we can have victory over the evil one. We may lose some battles. We may get some scars in battles. But Jesus has won the war. Amen? Amen. And as we grow in our faith and rely on divine power, God does amazing things in and through us. Uh, you know, and of course, um, we would love um, to, um, our job is faithfulness and God in His time determines the scope of the fruitfulness. I think about that time Peter was weary. He was a fisherman and uh, he had uh, been fishing all night and what had he caught? Nothing. And Jesus comes and says, you don't fish during the day. You know, they're, they're, if it didn't happen at night, it's not going to happen, Jesus. But Peter trusted Jesus. And so even though he's weary and tired and worn out, and maybe a little crabby with the other fishermen, they probably rolled their eyes when Jesus said it. Jesus said, put out the nets. And they said, Lord, Peter said, Lord, we've been fishing all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, we'll put out the nets. And they were so full, they were breaking, right, when they came in. And I take that as really a, a metaphor for us. I can't get over, when I was first here, I met with, um, uh, what was uh, the, the Harold, uh, uh, what was the professor at Liberty? Mark and Mike are sons. No, uh, the one that does the treasure paths. Grooms. Grooms, that's right. So Mark Grooms, I was meeting with Mark Grooms. Uh, who has carried on his father's great ministry of the treasure pass. And it's, of course, exploding in India through Kumar and others there, Stephen Kumar. And uh, he said, Danny, he said, I'm a better preacher now than I was in the 80s. But man, when we gave invitations then, you know, just people came up and said, he said, I'm a better preacher now. I think I'm doing a good job. I'm relying on the Spirit and that sort of thing. And nothing happens now. And uh, Raymond Barber uh, lamented to me one time uh, when we were in Texas. He, we were talking and then he said he, he had met W.A. Criswell, great First Baptist uh, Dallas pastor before Criswell had died. And Criswell had told a bunch of pastors, he said, fellas, we've got to be faithful. He said, they used to come by the hundreds. Now they come by the handfuls, you know. And, uh, you know, so, boy, I hope that before I die, I get to see another time where in response to the preaching of the Word and the witness of God's people, the nets are full, right? Our job is to be faithful, and then one day, the nets will be full, you know, again. And, uh, but uh, I'm often reminded there's no shortcuts in that. We've got to be faithful men and women of God, saying our prayers, making the difference, plowing the fields, etc. 
because the most successful prophet numerically in the Old Testament was not faithful to God. It was Jonah, right? He was in disobedience and saw 120,000 people turn to God, but he didn't get any blessing or reward because of that because he, he didn't like those people, didn't want them to be saved, you know. Jeremiah, very faithful. Nothing happened except faithfulness to the Word of God that itself was recorded for posterity. But if he had any converts, it was just that guy that wrote for him, Baruch, you know. Uh, nobody else, really, you know. So I wish, it'd be awesome, wouldn't it, to be in days of uh, just full nets, you know, and smiley faces and full seats and all those different things. But let's be faithful, and one day God will do it again. And every once in a while you hear of God doing it. Iran is on the uptick now, many being saved in Iran. Uh, there's a church, uh, uh, Robbie Gallaty's church in Long, Long Hollow Baptist, and uh, uh, they had had, in the last year, they had had two different speakers who had spoken to them commit suicide because of the age we're in. These were pastors that took their own lives and things. And he was so broken up about that that one Sunday before the church, he just kind of broke down and just was talking to them. And you know, God has done such a revival through their brokenness there uh, that, uh, and wanted to have the, the real thing that um, they've baptized 1,100 people uh, since November. Wow. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.